Welcome to the Bridgetown Church Podcast. For the month of February, we are honoring Black History Month. Each week, members of our church family will be sharing stories that acknowledge and celebrate Black history from both their lived experiences and the world at large. So for the last episode of this incredible podcast series during this Black History Month, we will hear from one of the newest members of our community, and that's Jonathan Tremaine Thomas of Civil Righteousness, who has recently joined our team as Bridgetown Church and Civil Righteousness have formed an official partnership and are able to hopefully become mutual blessings to one another in the days to come from Portland, Oregon, over to Ferguson, Missouri. So JT is a face you're going to get to know a lot better and see a lot of around Bridgetown but we wanted to start by giving you an opportunity to get to know him, not in the position he's occupying as Justice and Mercy Fellow at our church, but as a brother and a follower of Jesus. How you doing, my brother? I am doing great. So good to be here. So we're so excited to get to know your story. And I'd love just to begin from the top. Tell us about where you grew up. I grew up in a super small rural North Carolina town called Forest City, North Carolina. Um, It's about an hour west of Charlotte and an hour east of Asheville. So it's called the foothills of the Blue Ridge Mountains, a beautiful area. And um, also not a very diverse area. So I had some interesting experiences growing up there. Yeah, tell us about tell us about some of that. Tell us about your family history. How did you end up in that region of the country, uh, and what was it like growing up there? Yeah, so my dad grew up in Union, South Carolina, and he really grew up in the community that was um, the remnants from enslavement. So uh, a large group of slaves. In fact, almost ninety percent of the those African. Americans that live uh, in America today came through the port of Charleston. And so um, the Piedmont areas of South Carolina, they they went from the coastal areas to the Piedmont areas. So Union um, is considered the kind of Piedmont of South Carolina. And there was a Gula Geechee. Gula Geechee is like a West African um uh, tribal language that survived slavery. Wow. And my dad and that side of my family were Gula Geechee. And uh, so it was interesting. He grew up in that culture, but he didn't know that that's um, who they are. He mm-hmm. didn't know that they were, some people call it Gullah. So you'll hear Gula, you'll, you'll, you'll hear Gullah. And the Gullah, they kind of talk like this. They, they, they don't complete that word. Then they, it sound like, Sounds like that. Mm-hmm. And so my dad always thought that my family was just, that his family was just ignorant and uneducated. Wow. He didn't under, he was like, they talk crazy, man. So, so he, he, he just mo- thought they were like deep south, backward. D- deep kinda, south, yeah. backwards, backwards. So he moved somehow, his family ended up uh, in North Carolina, across just across the South Carolina border in this small town. We lived, we would go to South Carolina to get our gas because gas was cheaper in South Carolina. So we're mm-hmm. literally living on the border growing up. And um, he grew up in the Jim Crow area, era, mm-hmm. um, and he was actually 24 before he ever walked through the front doors of 
a public building. Wow. And so, um, so he grew up in this, in this era of American history where he did not have very positive interactions with people who were not black. Uh, and therefore, I mean, for the most formational years of his life up until his 20s. So therefore, he was a very hard man because everything he, every environment he navigated and everything he ever had to do, he was breaking through barriers. He, yeah. It was a fight, you know. And so, um, so my brother and I, I have a brother um, and an adopted older sister. Are you the youngest? I'm the youngest. Okay. And we were raised with these really high standards. My dad got his first full-time job when he was 14. Um, while he was in high school, his dad, my grandfather, was a moonshiner. Hmm. Um, so, and he he was running uh, moonshine around through the mountains. That was the that it wasn't cocaine and heroin. That wasn't the game. It was moonshine. And uh, all of his brothers were kind of caught up in that in that world as well. So my dad at 14 was like, I'm not living that life. And so he started working in a textile mill, and he never made more than ten dollars an hour my entire life but he had a, a really hard work ethic and his, his uh, kind of mode of operandi was you are black in America and white people don't like you. They, they don't, uh, they don't really care about you. You can be friends with them, but they'll turn on you and you have to prove that not only you can, you deserve access to what they have access to, but you need to go the extra mile. So if your teachers ask you to write a five-page paper, you write a 10-page paper. If they tell you that the dress code is casual, you show up in a suit. Um, that was just kind of his mentality because that's how he had to get ahead. And so that's from my dad's side. I'll pause there. And then my mother, she grew up in Philadelphia. Um, and so her first exposure to the Deep South was after integration um, in the late sixties. And she was shocked by the, the climate mm. of, of the deep South. They got married in the early seventies, had my, my brother and then me and, um, and then adopted my older sister. But we were raised with these really high academic standards and really high social standards and both of them loved Jesus, and so we were raised in the church. My dad was a deacon. My mother was the choir director. And my mother's family was, was whereas my dad's family was unchurched and kind of in coming up out of the Southern poverty, my mother's family was highly um, gifted intellectually and musically and um High, high intellect, which kind of, if you look at my mom and my dad, <laughs> you kind of wonder like, how in the world did they get together? Um, but my, my, my mother's family um, was a lineage of pastors, preachers, evangelists, teachers, professors, um, artists, musicians, singers. And um, so her great, my great grandmother was a Methodist circuit rider. Um, What's a circuit rider? A circuit rider um, back in the 
uh, Second Great Awakening, there were these Methodist preachers who would travel on horseback from town to town and preach the gospel. And, um, I mean, that was particularly popular um, around, you know, I'd, I'd say mid-1800s, early yeah. to mid-1800s. Is that the birth of the traveling evangelist that's in this the, country? That's it. Wow. That's actually it. And so um, somewhere in slavery, while, while, while in slavery, um, one of my ancestors on my mother's side came to Jesus um, and I don't know that story. We don't know that history. It didn't get passed down besides the fact that we know it happened and became a preacher. And then uh, my great-grandmother, who is half Cherokee Indian and half African-American, um, in the early to mid-1900s, she decided, she said, Lord, if you can use a mother, uh, will you use me? She felt a call to preach after she had had eight kids. Wow. And she says, Lord, if you can, I don't know if a woman can preach. I don't know the theology behind that is basically what she was saying. But she yeah. says, Lord, if you can use me, then here I am. And um, what a lot of people don't understand is that. That's even, a dangerous prayer. It, it's very dangerous. <laughs> it is very dangerous. And God's looking for a yes in our hearts, right? Yeah, and yeah. there was a yes in hers. And um, at that time, the southern uh, plantations were no longer obviously they weren't operating slave plantations but they did not look very much different you know the post antebellum culture didn't change very much a lot of the slaves uh, migrated to major cities but a lot of them stayed because it's like where do you go yeah those that didn't leave in the great migration how do they how do you start a life at e that point exactly yeah. exactly so she uh, gets married, and they, her and her husband start traveling to these former plantations, preaching the gospel and doing tent meetings, and people are getting saved, and churches start getting planted. And she would carry her gaggle of children with her, and one of the children um, who played piano for her nightly services uh, was a savant who um, was able to read or play and retain the information like in, in a stunning way. So at four years old, she heard, um, her name was Eunice. She heard some music and uh, I believe it was, it, it was a Bach piece, I believe, heard it on a radio and then sat down and picked it out and played almost perfectly what she had heard. And um, this child uh, prodigy was taken under by a wealthy white lady in Tryon, North Carolina, which is um, right beside Forest City where I grew up. Mrs. Mas Masinovich, she paid to send her to Juilliard in mm -hmm. New York. And, of course, Juilliard would not take her because she was African-American, and that would um, publicly, that would just make them less prestigious as an institution if they knew that they were allowing, admitting people of color. Approximately what year is that? Um, at that time, by this time, you're looking at the late 40s. Yeah. Mid I mean, to late 40s. Yeah, it's yeah. fascinating to think about New York City, you know, a mm -hmm. city that most would not associate with that mm -hmm. kind of thing. Absolutely. But it was everywhere. Yeah, it was. Um, but 
this kid, Eunice Wayman, would go on to be secretly um, tutored in classical piano. She wanted to become the world's first classical jazz pianist. She would go on to be tutored by the director of the Curtis Institute in New York. And um, she started playing nightclubs in New Jersey to earn cash. And she was writing original songs. And one of her songs got recorded and it started to go viral for the time, so to speak. But there was no theology in our family that you could love Jesus and also be called to, you know, the mainstream culture for for impact. And so it was either you're singing the devil's music or you're serving Jesus and there's no in between. And so she changed her name to Nina Simone in order to um, keep our family from <laughs> kicking her out, you know, uh, of of the fold, so to speak. And, um, and I, I know this story from friendship with you, but those most listening to this podcast in this moment will be asking that Nina Simone. And so, yes, that Nina Simone. Yeah, that Nina Simone. And she, of course, became um, deeply embittered by the uh, social and cultural climate of America, um, both what she experienced personally, but also uh, what was happening in the Deep South while she was rising to stardom in New York. And so she became a protest singer, a civil rights uh, singer, and her sound really, and her vibe, so to speak, really became the pioneering force behind the black power movement, um, black, like loving blackness, being black. Really, blackness became her religion. Mm. Um, and she really was, was completely, um, she was used in many ways as like a prophet to, to, uh, social justice issues of the times, uh, but she was also fueled by a lot of bitterness. Um, so that was one of the things happening in my family uh, that informed my upbringing because we had this civil rights legend slash icon who was a, a who left America out of rage against the machine of America, so to speak. She went to Europe and had homes in Africa and became this this uh, global name and really uh, had no desire for America or love for America at all. She said, I'm not coming back. So she really didn't. Um, but we had that dynamic going on. And then her brother was a uh, professor of African studies. He formed the Department of African Studies at San Diego State University. Wow. And um, led the Citizens Interracial Committee from 1964 to 1969 that was ultimately responsible for hosting conversations in the city of San Diego, examining justice issues uh, that then led to the desegregation of their schools. He was sent as San Diego's delegate to Martin Luther King's funeral. He uh, died in January of 2020, and there's a huge write-up about him as San Diego's civil rights hero, and they're they may, you know, put a statue up of him, you know, soon. So to, to have that type of stuff going on in our family uh, was, was formational for me um, because my parents didn't talk about it a lot. My, my dad talked about race daily because he was trying to train me and my brother how do we navigate this very 
polarized, deeply, overtly racist Southern culture that we lived in. And, 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 um, and so my mom didn't bring the global and national, you know, kind of iconic perspective that, that, um, that my relatives operated in, they kind of kept us separated from all that. You know, we didn't talk about Aunt Nina very much. She would come home for Christmases. I, I can recall three Christmases with her at our table. Um, and when Uncle Carol, the professor from San Diego, came around, I just remember thinking, man, he's really smart, but I'm just a kid, you know, mm -hmm. didn't really know what he did. But the the lived experience for me in in the Deep South uh, informed a lot of the questions that I began to ask about race and class and culture. Uh, as the only black kid in the academically gifted classes, um, I experienced a lot of interesting things um, that began to form my worldview and shape, I believe, um, what I do today in some really experiential ways. Yeah, so not to date you, but just for, for context about your upbringing, what, what year were you born? I was born in 81. So you're, you're growing up in the 80s? Yeah. Early 90s? I'm an 80s baby. I got to, I got to see Michael Jordan in, in, his, uh, in his prime. Mm -hmm. the, best, the best years of the NBA, you know, uh, so. <laughs> I am younger than you, but I do remember those years as well. And I long for their return. However, <laughs> that right. is beside the point. Right. So what, tell me about what it was like to grow up and to be given lessons by your father as to how to navigate this racist climate, like as you're saying, or hostile climate, whatever the right terminology is. So what, educate someone like me. And what, what's that like? What kind of lessons is your father giving you? Yeah, I think I think as a man of God, you know, obviously the impact of seeing uh, a man of faith, but yet ultimately a man whose worldview was deeply informed by a very almost unimaginable America today. Mm -hmm. You know, um, I can see how my mother's um, uh, sense of, intimacy with Jesus really formed me spiritually. Um, but my dad's sense of um, awareness of what it takes to be excellent, um, even if the motive was informed by, by his wounding, I think for me, um, you know, that excellence that he demanded from from all of us put me in positions where I was in all white context a lot. I was uh, put in a class basically from fifth grade to eighth grade. I was in a class. There were two African American uh, girls in the class. I was the only black guy, and there was one Mexican. <laughs> so that was that was diversity and. So in the most formational years of my life, all of, I'm surrounded by white folks. And there was music at that time coming out of Portland and Seattle, you know, Nirvana and yeah. Green Day and all these different people. And that was the sound while 
you know, Tupac and, and Snoop and Dre and all of, all of that music, another great music era, by the way. Yeah, you just outed yourself on the West Coast side of the battle there. Yeah, like. yeah, well, you know, <laughs> <laughs> you know, I'm trying to maintain some form of neutrality. Yep, but, you yep. know, uh, but the truth of the matter is during that season, um, you know, I was into what the white folks were into because I'm around them all yeah. day. But I get home and I'm, I'm in black culture, but even at home, because my dad was hardworking, my mother was a corporate executive in the, in the Haynes Corporation. We did not, I grew up middle class. We, we weren't upper middle class and we weren't lower. We were just middle, mm -hmm. but in an impoverished rural Southern town, they thought we were rich. And so when I would hang out with black folks or try to hang out with black friends at school, you know, at recess or at lunches, uh, I get made fun of. The black people would say, man, you ain't one of us. You don't understand the struggle. Y'all live in that nice house. Uh, wow. You wear those nice clothes. You go to class with all the white people. You're an Oreo. You're black on the outside and white on the inside. Mm -hmm. And then I would leave that and go hang out with the white folks. And I've got white girls touching my hair and asking me questions like, ooh, do you put oil on your hair? And I'm like, do you put oil on your hair? <laughs> you know, they like touch my hair. N not not hair oil. I'm talking like motor oil. Yeah. Is your hair black because you put oil on it? Um, or they'd be my friend at school, and then I'd see them in a grocery store with their parents. And I'd be like, oh, hey, Amanda. And they would, like, act like I don't exist. And then they'd see, I'd see them the next day at school, and they're like, sorry, I wasn't trying to be rude, but my dad would flip if he saw me talking to a black guy. Really? Oh, Yeah. Uh, and then my, my best friend at the time, um, who I thought was my best friend, but, um, I, his, uh, his dad was a dentist and they were, they were wealthy and, uh, they had a beach house and, um, he would take a beach trip every summer and take a bunch of friends to the beach house to go to on the trip with him. And then when I was finally old enough to realize why I was like, wait a second, this has been going on for a few years now. Everybody comes back and talks about all the awesome things that happened on the, the beach trip. And I just, I confronted him one day when I was in high school. I was like, hey, bro, so you went on another trip this weekend? Yeah, yeah. I'm like, so why, why have you never asked me to come on the trip? Like, what's up, bro? I thought we were boys. You know, mm -hmm. we spent all of our time together. What, why are we not coming? And he says, I always knew this day would come. I knew you'd ask me this. And he says, I'll just be honest with you. When we go to the beach, my whole family comes on this trip along with the friends and my grandparents come and they said they refuse to sleep in the same house as a black person. And that's why I've not invited you. And suddenly it hit me. I go, oh, okay. So I'm, I'm too white for the black people. I'm too black for the white people. I'm good enough to ride in your car and hang out with you, but I'm not good enough to sleep in the same house as your family. Okay, I get it. Mm. And um, and uh, so those things drove me to ask deep questions about identity. Also, I mean, at that time, growth spurts. Like I, I was head and shoulders taller than a lot of my friends in middle school. And so immediately everybody's assumption, if you're six foot three and you're 13 years old, 
Um, you got big hands and big feet. The assumption with everywhere I went, oh, so you playing ball, man, you balling. And I started thinking, I'm like, is this my worth? Is this what it means for me to be a black man? Like that the assumption is, oh, that my dream and my aspiration is to go to the NBA. Is that all I'm worth? Is that all I'm good for? So I, I rebelled, bro. Like I, I went the opposite direction of any stereotypical expectation. I was like, you know what? Just because I can play basketball and I, I can dunk, I can do all those things. But just because that's what you expect me to be, and that's the summation of my of my worth, um, I, I think I'll try rollerblading. I think I'll try <laughs> golfing. You know, I I I was just I just developed this like resistance um, that was informed by the cultural stereotypes that I felt like I had to confront every single day, and then just not feeling. God, what does it mean? Do I have to be a thug to be black? Is is that will that make me black enough? So I went through that season in high school, um, smartest kid in the class, but then decided, oh, I think I'll 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 act like I'm a thug, hang out with the thugs for a while, and try to street life, and <laughs> that didn't work, you know. So then I hang out. I, I was on this kind of rabid search for identity, um, and then I had an encounter with Jesus, man. Yeah, I'm tracing the themes of your story, and, you know, we both believe in a God who uses every last piece of who he's made us. Yeah. And you have a history in your family of, like, a burning passion for justice. Yeah. And that's been expressed in what I think you would call, like, healthy or redemptive and and unhealthy ways, you know, in your family history. And you have your own experiences growing up, you know, of kind of being batted around and trying to find where you land and where your feet feel solid. Sure. And then you meet Jesus, and here you are. Uh, I I guess I, I know that our time is limited, but I'd like to ask you, a couple pieces of your story. The first one is, how'd you meet Jesus? And then the second is, I think you can give unique insight. Today, you are a black man who leads often in both predominantly black or minority-led church contexts and predominantly white or majority-led church contexts. Yeah. And so you you kind of bridge that divide often. And I wonder if you can give us some insight into what that is like and what your prayers are for reconciliation in the church. Sure. Well, I'll, I'll tell you, I met Jesus um, having grown up in church. I, I really believe I met him at a, a young age and loved him my whole life, but I wasn't comfortable um, being known as a follower of Jesus, you know, I just, I just wanted to shed the church boy perception. The, the one place I had always felt identity and acceptance, acceptance was at church, but I didn't want to be the church boy. So I, I was running from that identity for a long time, but I, I think I met the, the Holy Spirit <laughs> when I was 14 
And he came upon me in a, in a really profound way and settled the identity issue and said, you are my son. I heard the Lord. I heard his voice. He says, you are my son. I've laid my hand upon you, and I'm making you a messenger. He said, I'm making you. He actually said, I'm making you a messenger of fire. Mm-hmm. But um, this, this, this really powerful supernatural encounter that I had with the Lord it in three ways it it settled three questions one you are my son you're not what everybody in the culture defines you as the truth of the matter is when he said when his voice broke through and said you are my son it caused all the other voices to fade this is who you are this is your identity then he says i've laid my hand upon you that answered the why question like why am i going through this why has this happened to me it's because my hand's on you. Mm. That, and then the third thing, and I'm making you a messenger, it settled my destiny and my calling. Like I'm making you a messenger of fire. You're going you're gonna to speak on my behalf and lead in your generation. And I'm going to work all these things for your good. And, and so that really lends itself into um, how I see the process has prepared me you know, all of a sudden, I didn't know that in my search for identity and hanging out with the emo crowd and hanging out with the the thugs and then hanging out with the the more the wealthier kind of suburban kids and hanging out with all these different groups and then how that began to form my journey through college and post college and between different denominations and the vocabulary of the spirit that I gained, the lexicon of of cultural agility. Um, that was being built in me from my my deep-rooted Southern missionary, black missionary Baptist, you know, kind of expressions to then, you know, uh, more liturgical, traditional, evangelical spaces. And, you know, I did not know how God was taking all of these things to, to form me to be one that could build bridges, that can move in and out of spaces, that can actually sit at a table with white supremacist and have the the moral fortitude on the inside to not get so overwhelmed by emotions and offense that I can't actually uh, listen to them and then connect with them. I'm going, look, there's nothing you can say to me because I've been tested in in the fires of the, of the South. Like I've been called bad names before. So you Mm -hmm. gotta, you gotta give me more than that to, to get me off my, my rocker. And the Lord was was forming me in some really profound ways. And I think, you know, in times like these where many people are having these conversations for the very first time, um, I'm going, these are the conversations I've lived in my entire life. So this is not like a, a pop culture phase for me. This is not a trend. This is, this is reality. You know, I'm not thinking about this for the first time. And, um, and I think that um, God has just been faithful to uh, bring me into spaces where now um, he's making withdrawals on those deposits. And so I'm excited to be a part of what he's doing here in Portland and, and also at Bridgetown in that way. Yeah, and, and I know from the first conversation I had with you, you and I started to recognize counterpoints in our in our, like, early formative moments with Jesus. And so I know even as a 14-year-old what it meant, you know, that he had his hand on you and how you have stories of 
the way he began to use you to preach the gospel and the way that that happened at your college. And a lot of that is how we've ended up in this partnership together. It's just realizing, wow, from very different worlds, God has written similar stories in us. But I do wonder if you could just school us on on the church in this country for just a moment and tell us what is, I guess, maybe if you could just speak to Bridgetown and help, you know, we're people that we pray for and long for racial reconciliation in the church, in a country whose history is as spotty as ours. And that's obviously saying it as politely as possible. What would that look like? What are the longings in your heart when it comes to reconciliation in the church? I think, first of all, we have to have a vision of the one new man, that that the truth of the matter is oneness in John 17 is not something that Jesus is begging the Father, like, God, would you make them one, please? Would you just do it? He actually starts that whole passage by saying, I have accomplished the work. Mm-hmm. He says, I've accomplished the work. Yeah. And then he goes on, he says, Father, the glory that you have given me, I have given them. Hmm. that they may be one. In other words, I've already given them all of the resource of heaven in order for them to walk in and walk out oneness. Oneness is done. They just need to tap into my glory. Hmm. So my dream is, man, what if Bridgetown were the people who God could hang his glory upon that we, glorious beauty, majesty revealed, that we would be a people who reveal the majesty, the multi-ethnic, multi-faceted beauty of Jesus lived out in a John 17 community where people of every tribe, tongue, uh, nation, every, every socioeconomic class, where the homeless feels like a king, and where kings feel at home. <laughs> you know, it's yeah. like, what what would it look like for us to be this people who love beyond the boundaries and the borders when nothing in the culture is encouraging that or, or making it easy to do that? Mm-hmm. And then beyond that, man, to see the glory of God revealed in a city and real transformation, real uh, uh, generational issues that that no one has ultimately had solutions for. God says, no, I, I see a house and a people that I can entrust mysteries to, so I'm going to release blueprints, and this is going to solve something that hasn't been solved for 100 years. This is going to solve and heal a wound that's been open since the foundations of, of, uh, of America, since the inception of of. Uh, the discovery of the land that Portland is built on. Yeah. You know, those are the types of, of dreams that I believe God is is wanting to release in our midst. And I just want to dream with them and see it walked out. Yeah, we started this podcast series for Black History Month by acknowledging Oregon and Portland's racist past. And so it's appropriate that we might end it with Portland and Oregon's potential redemptive future. So may that be. May it be. Yeah, may he entrust us with that by his grace. Amen. Thank you for listening. 
To learn more about Black history, Oregon's past racism, and Bridgetown's vision for the future, visit bridgetown.church justice.